sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about uh, in Ohio, how the House Republicans passed a bill that will not only ban transgender students from sports, but will also require genital exams. Also going to be discussing ongoing attacks on alternative media and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, I was reading RTE, which is Ireland's public service media outlet, and they reported on the mass shootings over the weekend here in the United States. In Chattanooga, Tennessee, on Sunday, 14 people were shot, including two killed, while another person died and two more were injured after they were struck by vehicles leaving the scene near a nightclub. In Philadelphia on Saturday, two men and a woman were killed when multiple people opened fire on a crowd at a popular South Street nightlife area. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw said one of the victims got into a fight with another man, which could have been the cause of of the shooting. In Saginaw, Michigan, three people were killed and two others wounded in a shooting yesterday. And in Clarendon County, South Carolina, five teens and a 12-year-old were among seven people wounded in a shooting at a graduation party on Saturday that killed one adult, police said in a statement. The article in RTE noted that, quote, gun attacks are common in America, but the shock felt over recent mass shootings at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, which killed 10 and 21 people, respectively, have spurred cries for action, end quote. Gun attacks are common in America. I wonder how many foreign news outlets have printed those words or some variation thereof over the past few weeks. Gun attacks are common in America. They absolutely are because there are 393 million guns in the hands of private owners in this country with a population of around 329 million. Gun attacks are common in America because settling disputes with a gun is literally the foundation of the American mythos. It is all throughout the good guy with a gun narrative that fuels the might makes right entertainment about America from Westerns to war movies. America's identity is wrapped up in guns, oppressive firepower and last man standing ideology. The American mythos doesn't include good faith negotiations between opposing parties or coming to mutually beneficial agreements to settle disputes. In America, we meet at high noon in the middle of the street and have a shootout. At least that's what the Westerns showed the great pioneers do. So how are people surprised that a nation overrun by guns settles its disputes with guns? That's how the West was won. Why wouldn't every other dispute expect to be won that way? An open letter published Sunday in the Dallas Morning News signed by more than 250 prominent Texas conservatives offered support to the bipartisan effort to come to some gun control legislation agreement going on right now. 
The signers also endorsed a federal red flag law and expanded background checks. But I doubt whatever comes from this bipartisan effort that it will include renewing the federal ban on assault rifles that expired in 2014. And it'll probably contain more funding for more police in schools, which is clearly not the answer. I know what the answer is. Health care, housing, education, jobs. But we're not going to get that. So we'll be talking about this issue again, I'm sure, far too damn soon. And the Zen Education Project notes that on June 5th, 1981, the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report published a study about five patients, all gay men, treated for a rare fungal infection caused by severely weakened immune systems. The study noted that the infection was spread among patients who identify as gay. It said that the cause of the infection was likely an unknown, quote, cellular immune dysfunction, end quote, that was soon identified as AIDS, or Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. This study marks the beginning of the recognition of the AIDS epidemic in the United States. In the decades that followed, people organized to raise awareness of HIV-AIDS, to find a cure, to educate people about treatment and prevention, and to create a culture of compassion instead of fear around it. Activist organizations like ACT UP or AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power have worked since the 1980s to change healthcare policies and cultural stigma while supporting individuals. And June 5th is also observed as HIV Long-Term Survivors Day. So how have we gone backwards as a nation to turning back into denigrating trans and LGBTQ people with bills that deny medical care to transgender children, bans trans students from playing in school sports, and enforces a dehumanizing genital exam that would be imposed on trans students who dispute the ban? I'll tell you how the right, particularly the so-called religious right in this country. They lost the culture war. They did. They didn't stop gay marriage. They didn't force prayer back in schools. They didn't keep so-called religious schools that are really segregation academies from losing their federal tax-exempt statuses because of their racist, homophobic policies. Since they don't have policies other than fear of the other to run on, they have now made transgender children the other. The Christian fascists that are the Republican Party need someone to target as being the enemy trying to destroy whatever their idea of American values is. It's still black people and our angry demands for justice, and it always will be, but it's also now transgender children who they claim are somehow threatening girls' sports. As if these people cared about girls' sports before now, they sure weren't demanding equal funding for girls' sports before the transgender threat they cooked up. And sadly, their supporters believe that trans children and gay people are threats to their freedom, right along with us angry, woke black folks. So they, in their twisted, hate-filled logic, believe that denying human rights and dignity to others will somehow protect their rights. It doesn't, of course. It only makes them the real boogeymen and the real threats to freedom and human dignity for all of us, which is what they have always been. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content.
And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Carly Webb, an athlete, activist, journalist, socialist, contributor to Outsports and the host of the Transporter Room. Carly, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, always great to be here. Definitely. And Carly, you know, we had you on the show not long ago uh, discussing uh, a recent uh, anti-transgender bathroom bill in Oklahoma. Well, now it seems that the state of Ohio has actually topped even that as uh, Ohio House Republicans recently passed a bill that will ban all transgender students from playing sports in high school and college and even requires genital exams in any disputes. And specifically, I'm talking about a House Bill 151, which uh, I think in a bit of dark irony was voted on on the first day of Pride Month. And I mean, it really seems like these uh, 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 attacks on uh, transgender youth, the transgender people in general and LGBTQ folks, Carly, I mean, really seems to be uh, escalating here. I mean, this uh, a right wing sort of campaign that is often called a quote unquote culture war, I think in reality, is a life and death issue of this deep kind of bigotry. And so, I mean, it's obviously a terrible thing, but I'm just, you know, wondering what are some of your top line thoughts about how this is developing? Well, Sean, my first thought is simple. I'm Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, and I want to be president. And the case of what the lunacy Florida is trying to do, I'm Ron DeSantis, and I want to be president. This is about winning the New Hampshire primary in 2024 for a lot of these people. This is about also the this is the Republican strategy for the off-year election this year. Find an enemy and make you afraid of it. Michael Douglas wasn't wrong in the movie of the American president. Republicans only know two things. Find find someone, find it, make you afraid of it, find someone to blame for it. It's what they do. And it's a shame that they're picking on people's kids. And I note about Ohio, because number one, this bill was passed right, literally under people's noses in Ohio. Wasn't a lot of coverage on it until it got passed. And a lot of people were shrugging their shoulders. People were, were shocked that it even got passed. People, most people in Ohio didn't even know this was going through. And I was, and just a side note, I was in Ohio this last weekend. I had a nice little vacation. I was at Cedar Point. And you can hear the shock in people talking about this and I was hanging out with a few people who are Ohioans who are trans and they were like, we tried to warn you about this and most people didn't even know. So that is, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to slip this under the door when they're not looking, but this bill is, but this bill in Ohio is horrible because mainly the biggest sticking point is, and this is why I tell people this isn't just about trans kids and this isn't just about LGBTQ people. What we're seeing this can affect any kids, any any girl, especially in the state of Ohio, who plays classic or intercollegiate sports. Because if someone doesn't like the way you're playing a particular day, you're playing a little bit too good that day, they can call for an inspection on you, which calls for, according to the bill, an internal genital inspection and a chromosome test. So in other words, 
we're talking about things that the IOC stopped doing 30 years ago because it was it violates people's human rights. The internet, the the court of arbitration sport ruled on that in 1999 that this violates your human rights. But it seems like it's okay to do that in the state of Ohio. It's it's very it's sick, it's dire, and it's hostile. It definitely is sick. And I mean, particularly when we see this uh, smear campaign, these, this this basic narrative that trans people or LGBTQ folks in general are, you know, pedophiles or, or groomers of children. Meanwhile, they're literally requiring a, a, a genital exam of uh, children and young adults. And it really just is just such a wild turn of events. And I mean, what continues to be frustrating for me, uh, Carly, is... How, you know, again, this is so uh, obviously something that is emanating from uh, uh, Republicans and from uh, the reactionary right in this country. And the Democrats just really uh, put up no fight at all. I mean, they tend to come, I think, with some uh, uh, mealy mouth sort of responses about, you know, uh, the support uh, for trans folks or for the LGBTQ community. But I mean, I just feel like at different turns, particularly in this most recent period, we've just not seen seen any kind of real resistance uh, from uh, uh, the Democrats as it pertains to this issue. And so, I mean, they they seem, frankly, content with the, the violence, the out-and-out violence that's being aimed at trans folks and at LBG, uh, LGBTQ people. I mean, matter of fact, people may have seen this video that uh, uh, was going around just this past weekend in Dallas where um, a, a group of uh, people reportedly calling themselves a Christian fascist basically descended upon this uh, restaurant in a a gay neighborhood in Dallas where, you know, people were in there with their kids and things like that. I mean, this is how things are really sort of escalating uh, here in this country. And, you know, the Democrats are just sort of, you know, just not really saying a mumbling word about it. I mean, like I say, they got some platitudes, but it seems like the real fight back around this uh, violent attack, Carly, is going to have to come from a grassroots effect because, you know, the Democrats just don't see fit to, or, you know, don't seem motivated to really protect this part of the population that you would think is a part of their base. Sean, let's just kick the ballistics. You know, and I know that the Democratic Party is saying, you know what, um, we, we, we love trans people, but they'll get us beat. That's, that's what Democrats truly believe. We love transgender people, but if we talk about your issues, you will get us beat. So we have to kind of like, we kind of like have to push you to the side. If it wasn't for like the Elk City John Brown Gun Club in Dallas, no one would have known about that, and there would have been very little resistance to it. And we've seen that all across. You probably heard about what happened in New York City with the People Center, where a group, where a fascist and proud boy group walked in and basically tried to trash the center. If it wasn't for good comrades in New York standing up not only to these fascists, but to the LYPD who were enabling them, a very important piece of progressive and radical activism in the New York Metro would have gotten trashed by fascists. This is not surprising. I, I saw the Twitter feeds today on, on some of the video where people were saying things like, we can't wait to take all your rights away, i.e. what's going to happen to even adults with Medicare in Florida right now because of what Ron DeSantis wants to do with that executive order from him saying that if you're a trans person and you're on Medicare, Medicare doesn't have to cover you. Medicare doesn't have to cover any of your health care. You see, this is, it's genocide, Sean. That's what it is. 
point out an enemy, classify an enemy, and start taking things away from them. And and after you ask that question, we got to get into why this is important to the working class. Because if they can take away things from the most marginalized of our communities, especially on Pride Month, they can take it from you too. This is a working class issue. This isn't just LGBTQ. If you're in the working class, you're LGBTQ, especially this month now. We're all in the same boat. Yeah, and, and the class question that you're mentioning, Carlia, I think is so uh, important in terms of the real-life physical uh, impacts that will be felt by this community. And what you were referencing there in terms of Florida Governor Ron uh, DeSantis, who has moved to ban transition care for transgender youths. And to me, it, it, it's just so transparent what the right wing is doing here, Carly, because they're coming in under that same old banner of, you know, family values values and quote unquote protecting children and things like this. And so, you know, uh, 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 trans people and LGBTQ folks, you know, for a long time have been a kind of convenient uh, uh, boogeyman uh, for the right wing uh, to swipe in and save uh, uh, the country from or whatever. And so it's a really insidious thing that they put forth these things like this, this ban from DeSantis or this decision we were just talking about by the Ohio House uh, with the, with the general exams and things like that. And that's the really sick part of it is that they're framing it as though it's going to be helping young people or helping um, children or families or communities, when in reality it's just institutionalizing and really legitimizing uh, discrimination uh, against this element of the population. I'm not sure what else you call it. It's legitimizing this uh, bigotry. You know what I mean? And so I think you're correct uh, when you talk about the Democrats in terms of the, the opportunism, because they think that uh, uh, fighting too hard for trans folks is uh, going to hurt their electoral prospects. And so they take a, a cowardly route. They take a, a politically expedient route that puts an entire community in danger. And so I feel like this is the reality of what we're uh, uh, looking at here, Carly, and the fact that this would overwhelmingly uh, uh, impact a poor working uh, and oppressed people when you look at how LGBTQ folks are, are treated under capitalism. Well, then it's clear that these issues are not marginal, but uh, a clear sort of central issue when we talk about a capitalist exploitation. Exactly. Because, of, because again, it goes back to if we can start going after the most marginalized people, because let's take the ballistics also of what, of what, for example, trans communities, you're talking about unemployment rates that are five times the national average, now up to six times the national average, at about 10 or 15% if you're black and brown. You've got a majority of trans people in this country living under the poverty line or unemployed or underemployed, unemployed or underemployed. If you take away the safety net from the most marginalized, they're going to sink. But the thing is, they've been tethering the safe, they've been destroying the safety net for every working American for about 40, 50 years now. So it's time for the working class to step in and come together and realize no matter where you if you're not, whether no matter where you are in that rainbow, we're all in the same trench fighting the same fight, which is liberation for working people. Now, as far as this threat to kids, I, I want to ask everyone a question here. If for a, for a parent in Uvalde, Texas right now, what's the bigger threat? Trans youth and trans rights or somebody being able to have easy access to a gun? What's the issue? What's the what's the bigger what's the what's the thing that's making you not sleep at night? 
Trust me, there's a lot of families in Uvalde, Texas, not sleeping right now. There's a lot of families in Buffalo, New York, not sleeping right now. It has nothing to do with transphobes. They're not afraid of Angelica Ross. They're afraid of somebody having an easy access to a gun. What's the real, what's the public health issue here? The public health issue here is firearms and easy access. That's the real issue we ought to be fixing. The real public health issue, ask a mother right now who's, who's scrambling to find formula for their baby what the real issue is right now. I think we need to keep our eye on the ball. But, of course, capitalism makes you take your eye off the real issues, gives you the side issues so that they can, so that the bosses can exploit you when you aren't looking. That's what this is really about. And I want to send a note to all these different companies who are all of a sudden slapping a rainbow, especially the Cleveland Browns, the Cincinnati Reds, the Cleveland Guardians, the Rock and Roll Fame, see the point. I saw you all rocking pride stuff when I was in Ohio last week. All the weekend, I saw a lot of pride. And then this bill gets passed where your governor basically and the, and the House and Senate Republican in your state flipped the bird to every LGBTQ Ohioan at the start of Pride. Um, I need to see some muscle along with the hustle. Don't, no pinkwashing, no rainbow capitalism, especially this month. Yeah, and, you know, I think it, it, it is relevant um, when we talk about this issue of uh, uh, pink washing and rainbow capitalism that seems to happen every year at Pride. I mean, Carly, you've probably seen uh, this graphic from the U.S. Marines uh, where they have this uh, helmet that almost looks like the graphic from the Full Metal Jacket movie with rainbow-tipped bullets. This is the U.S. Marines that is responsible for just, I mean, you know, an unimaginable amount of bloodshed and suffering. Uh, around the globe all over the years as an important aspect of the U.S. imperialist uh, uh, war machine. But see, when we talk about Pride Month, Pride Month is a time that emerges out of a people's struggle in the streets, a struggle against institutional homophobia and transphobia, uh, a struggle against racist police terror when we uh, look at incidents like uh, the Stonewall Rebellion and things like this. I mean, at every turn uh, throughout history, I feel like we've seen this uh, same community fight uh, for their humanity and fight to be able to to have their own space. I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of these uh, uh, rebellions took place at places like, you know, Stonewall or Cooper or Donuts or Compton's uh, Diner, you know, uh, all all these sorts of important uh, movements in what became Pride. Of course, like a lot of things, I mean, we could make a similar argument for Juneteenth in terms of how it gets corporatized and things like that. And so particularly in a moment like this, Carly, where there is just obviously a ramping up of violence on several levels against the LGBTQ community, that we remember sort of the real um, history uh, of pride and, and sort of use that as a way to, to you know, spurn us on as we continue to struggle. I agree with that. There's something I put on my Twitter at the beginning of Pride Month. If, if your pride celebration is not, not radical, I won't want to go. And we need pride to be radical AF, especially right now. 250-plus pieces of legislation across 39 states which directly go after LGBTQ people, many of them young LGBTQ people, and many of them young trans people. And those have a direct knock-on effect on issues such as reproductive rights, and issues such as voter suppression, because 
voter suppression is happening across this country, and that's the real underbelly issue that people don't want to talk about. Not only are they trying to separate black and brown voters from each other to take away political power, they're also separating neighborhoods as well. They're doing that across the board. That's why it is imperative for people, especially in this month, to come together and understand where your, where your class interest lies, as I'm going to say it, as proletariat in this country. We need to stop being afraid of that word, because that is what we are as working people in this country. We're in the working class. Don't be afraid to say working class. Don't be afraid to say workers. Don't be afraid to say proletariat. The working class has to come together against all these issues. We have to be in all the fights right now, because capitalism, especially rainbow capitalism, and rainbow imperialism, what we're seeing. You know, while, we, while you were asking the question, I was typing in my browser real quick, and I typed in four defense contractors. They're all selling pride gear. One of the largest crowds where I live in Connecticut is partially sponsored by Pride & Whitney. Pride & Whitney just doesn't build jet engines. Yeah, they build jet engines. They build jet engines largely from military applications. They're a defense contractor. Boeing has a pride store. General Dynamics is a pride store. Lockheed Martin is a pride store. This is not a coincidence. These are the same people who 20, who 30 years ago were saying, we don't want you serving. Now we're okay with you being in the, we're okay with LGBTQ folks as long as you're going, going 6,000 miles to bomb black and brown folks. Do we understand the connections here? Do we understand where our class interest lies? And that, and in a year, don't send, don't send my LGBTQ people across the world. Don't, don't send trans people across the world to wherever, to bomb whoever, and they can't even use the bathroom here in their own country. They can't even travel freely in their own country. They have to be afraid of their rights in their own country. They have to be told that you, you, you serve the Eglin Air Force Base, for example, in Tampa. You, you're, you're a trans airman in the United States Air Force, and then you're told you have no rights once you leave that base. But you are guarding Florida and guarding America. That doesn't make any sense. Don't make me, you, you cannot, you know, it's what John Carlos and Thomas Smith and the Olympic Project said in 1968. I can't run in Mexico City and crawl at home. And that is what rainbow imperialism is asking, asking proud LGBTQ people who are wearing their uniform to do. And we understand why we got in that fight for to keep discrimination out of the public sector because discrimination in the public sector goes into the private sector. But in the long term, we have to get away from imperialism and away from capitalism into a society that works for all. That is the only way we fix this long term. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Carly, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about 
ongoing attacks on real journalism and alternative news outlets. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Kiriakou, co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, here recently, John, uh, in the United States, a country that really enjoys boasting about how it has a supposedly free press and things like this, we've been seeing some serious attacks on journalism, I think, in uh, a number of ways. And I also tend to feel that it's um, directly uh, uh, connected to geopolitics and what uh, the U.S. government and corporate-owned media platforms uh, wants people to believe about a number of issues, uh, certainly uh, issues involving Ukraine and Russia and China and so on. And we uh, even saw the formation of a disinformation governance board, which I think for now is uh, actually Actually, on pause in a sense after the um, uh, ouster or resignation of Nina Jankowitz, who was going to head it up, but has a troubling uh, past of disinformation of her own. And I mean, uh, you know, you recently published a piece about this, John, for Consortium News entitled Guarding Democracy from News, which I think is rather uh, fitting. And even to have it on uh, Consortium News, which has faced a number of attacks on its own. And so just taking all this into account, I'm just wondering how you're sort of analyzing uh, this kind of moment that we're in in terms of uh, journalism, particularly as someone who's a whistleblower, and what do you think it all means uh, politically? I, I don't want to overstate the situation, and I don't think that I'm overstating it when I say that I view this as a modern-day book burning. It's uh, we've we've gone we've transitioned from countries and governments telling us what we can and can't read to now private organizations and companies telling us what we can and can't read. What I wrote about in this consortium news piece was a company called NewsGuard. This is a very dangerous development. This is an organization created by two people with impeccable journalistic credentials, right? One of them was the creator of Court TV. The other was the editor-in-chief of the the Wall Street Journal and a handful of other major mainstream uh, media outlets. But What they've done is they've decided to create this organization called NewsGuard to staff its board of directors with enemies of free speech, like Michael Hayden, the former director of the CIA, former director of the NSA, former principal deputy director of national intelligence, people like... Tom uh, Ridge, the the first uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, who was implicated in the kidnapping and torture of Maher Arar, an innocent University of Toronto uh, political science professor who was wrongly accused of being an Al Qaeda uh, terrorist. Uh, It's it's got people who have made um, made careers out of ensuring that the U.S. side of every news story was the only side that Americans had access to. And so, what they've done with this news guard is they've developed uh, something called an electronic tag, and they've gone to every alternative news outlet that I know of and essentially threatened them with with red tagging them so that when somebody is looking for a news story and they Google a news story, 
If, for example, a consortium news pops up, NewsGuard will have placed a red tag on the Google search saying unreliable. That this is an unreliable source of news. So what do they base this on? They claim to base it on a wide variety of criteria. What this has come down to, and we've been fighting with them for months at Consortium News, what it comes down to is that they're putting this unreliable tag on every alternative news site that doesn't tow the administration's line on Russia. That's what this comes down to. This is all about Russia. And so they've put the red tag on Mint Press News, on uh, the Gray Zone, uh, on Alexander Makouris's uh, Russia, I forget the name of it, in London. Uh, but, but anybody that, that writes or broadcasts that there are two sides to the Russia-Ukraine dispute gets the red tag. Now, with the red tag, it then affects the Google algorithm. So when you have this red tag, it pushes you lower and lower and lower in the algorithm to the point where if somebody wants to read your content, they just can't find it, right? Google won't send them to it. And so with fewer visitors to the site, advertising revenues drop, and the hope on the part of NewsGuard is that they push you out of business. Now, interestingly, when when, uh, Consortium News was first approached by NewsGuard, they got a nasty and accusatory email from some kid that none of us had ever heard of. And it turned out that this, this kid's, I call him a kid, he's in his 20s, his entire career in journalism amounted to two years at a science news outlet that went out of business after two years and even archivally is not available. So this kid's entire journalistic career is not even available to anybody who wants to see it. And he's telling us on this date, one of your authors wrote this about Ukraine, and we don't like that. We think that that's, uh, I'm serious, this is how these emails were going. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And, and it, the, the board of Consortium News Consortium News is headed by Joe Loria. It was right. it was founded by the great Robert Perry, you know, an extensively decorated and awarded um, journalist who broke the Iran Contra story. The guy was brilliant. Joe Loria is a former um, editor of the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe and head of investigations at the New York Times. These are serious people. Uh, the uh, the board of directors has the likes of our own Garland Nixon, for example. Or um, uh, John Pilger, or Chris Hedges. I'm on the board of directors. Uh, there, these are all serious people. None of us are are you know nuts or or fakes or anything. And um, they just don't like the content. And if they don't like the content, they've taken it upon themselves to put us out of business. So where do they get their money? They have a very interesting business model. This little tag is just one thing that they do. Another thing that they do is they collate information on the internet and then sell that information to subscribers saying, we found this information uh, at supposed independent news sites. We just want to flag it for you so you know to avoid it, right? And then they sell that service where? 
to the Pentagon. And the Pentagon has spent so far $75 million asking NewsGuard to advise them on what they should not allow Pentagon employees and military uh, people to read. Yeah, and and it's that that uh, $75 million that the Pentagon paid for, which creates this kind of disinformation fingerprints project, right. which the Pentagon says is a bunch of content that's like a catalog of known hoaxes, lies, and disinformation stories. Was that incredible and, and, or what? And it really is not that any of it are hoaxes or lies. They just don't like exactly. the fact that a, a narrative other than what they are spreading is out there. But I think I think the danger here, obviously, is the censorship of left uh, voices in the U.S. But this is not just a U.S. issue. No. This, this information service, if that's what you want to call it, I use that phrase very loosely, this information service does not just operate in the U.S., does no, it, John? No, you're absolutely right. It's international in scope. You've reminded me of something that's both funny and important at the same time. One of the examples... Of of a hoax and a lie that they used with us was a report in the gray zone. And Ray, we're all friends with everybody at the gray zone, and they're serious people too. Uh, but it was a story that the gray zone did on this purported gas attack, sarin gas attack in Syria. Oh. Right. Well. We know that there are whistleblowers from the United Nations that have come out and said, look, th- there, there is no evidence that this was ordered by the uh, Assad government, right? It may have been done by the terrorists. Well, that's not the official line. The official line is that Bashar al-Assad is a bad guy and bad guys do things like gas attacks. They don't care what the what the whistleblower says. They don't care the the fact that the whistleblowers brought out thousands of pages of documents to prove that what they were saying was correct. They don't care. And so they put this red tag on Grayzone. We we had a lot of discussions with Grayzone about how to confront this awful organization, NewsGuard. And what what we did at Consortium was exactly the opposite of what Grayzone uh, ended up doing. We we fought them literally point by point by point. It took more than a month to write up the response. The response was actually 68 pages long. Wow. Yeah. And we're not sure yet, but we think we may have caused them to back off. We also spent good money on an attorney to threaten to sue them and to drag them down into litigation. So, we we think they may have backed off. But... Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone has said that he will wear that red tag as a badge of honor, and he's happy to have a red tag. Yeah, and also, if people are interested, uh, Joe Loria himself, a friend of the show, um, published a piece about this on Consortium called U.S. State Affiliated NewsGuard Targets a Consortium News. Yeah, and, you know, it it really is wild, uh, John, because— I mean, I mean, again, I mean, this is a country that likes to tell the world that, you know, the United States is a place where basically, you know, journalists can, you know, 
publish dissenting views or what have you. And they're not like, you know, the quote unquote authoritarian countries where you can't say what you like. But yet, particularly, I mean, you know, the history itself sort of proves that's not true in, in a number sure. of ways. I mean, we could talk yes. about, I mean, the history of the black press, uh, uh, how, you that's know, different right. radical platforms were caught up in the Red Scare. But even um, in this most recent period since February, following uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and about how, you know, any alternative view is just verboten. That's right. And it's it's to me a uh, part and parcel of I don't know what you call it other than like a massive war propaganda campaign that was designed to uh, basically manipulate the American people into supporting what the U.S. government was doing, even though it doesn't benefit them. And what's funny about that on another level is how, you know, impotent the U.S. government seems to be in addressing material issues here at home. Yes. But uh, and I think the people sort of uh, feel that and why Biden's uh, uh, approval ratings are so low. But at the same time, uh, they do an excellent job selling war. And so we see sort of where the priorities of this government is and uh, uh, certainly the priorities of these corporate-owned media platforms. And as such, I feel like that only deepens uh, the, the social decay that's happening in the U.S. right now. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, it's even more cynical than just a company like NewsGuard. Uh, about two weeks before uh, NewsGuard sent Consortium News this threatening email, uh Consortium News had its PayPal account suspended. Right. Not just suspended, but they seized the $9,300 that was in the PayPal account the day before payday. Right? So we get paid once a month on the first of the month. Uh, for the previous month, they froze the $9,300. Joe Loria, to his great credit, um, immediately engaged an attorney. Uh, made a public statement that Consortium News was going to sign on to a class action suit that has already been filed against PayPal in the Northern District of California. Um, they unfroze the money, but have suspended Consortium News's account permanently. So, wow. there's nothing to do with PayPal. Now, the reason they did this is fascinating. Joe called PayPal and sat on hold for half the day until he finally got a human being who spoke out of turn and told told us more than she should have, but she confirmed that there were no complaints against Consortium News. There had been no complaints. They had said that, that Consortium violated the terms of agreement. And one of the terms was, you know, based on complaints from users, blah, blah, blah. There were no complaints. Finally, this young woman admitted that they just didn't like Consortium News' editorial position on Ukraine. That's all it was. Totally. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking a 
little bit about uh, some pop culture happenings here, Jackie, as uh, we've recently seen the series finale of We Own This City, which is an original uh, scripted series that was streaming on uh, HBO Max. It's set in Baltimore and is all about the Gun Trace Task Force, which we've uh, uh, talked about, a real-life incident that happened um, that we've discussed here on the show, where it was this unit within the Baltimore uh, uh, Police Department that, as its name uh, suggests, was all about, uh, you know, supposedly getting guns off the street and drugs as well. But it was supremely uh, corrupt with a lot of thieving going on. I mean, uh, uh, cops lying, suspects getting hurt, all these sorts of things, planting drugs, planting guns. I mean, just just the, the, the worst of the worst. Uh, which also was happening within the context around the time of um, of the Freddie Gray uprisings in Baltimore and and all these sorts of things. And so it's it's really all about what this unit was doing, how they were operating, and all under the leadership of one uh, Wayne Jenkins, who was played very well uh, by uh, John Bernthal, who I'm sure people remember from uh, the Punisher Netflix series and uh, a lot of other things. And I'm generally curious your thoughts about this, Jackie, especially as someone from the uh, area, because I feel like this is the first uh, kind of piece like this we've seen set in Baltimore since The Wire, which uh, came out about uh, 20 years ago this month. And so I feel like there's a lot there, but just uh, sort of generally curious your top line thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I actually wasn't even going to watch this series because I, I, you know, not not another cop show, not not <laughs> another cop show that that even if it if it focuses on telling the story of corruption in the police force is is never as accurate as, you know, the real life thing, because, I mean, 45 minutes <laughs> um, south of, of Baltimore, we all knew that you don't you don't mess around with with Baltimore cops. Right. They just, you know, PG County was bad, Baltimore was worse. Um but you know, and and DC cops certainly nobody trusted them, but at least they wouldn't steal your paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that kind of thing would happen in Baltimore and to regular folks, not to, you know, drug dealers and criminals and quote unquote suspects, but to to Baltimore police and particularly the Gun Trace Task Force. Everybody was a suspect. So everybody got victimized, right? So, you know, I, I didn't I didn't want to watch this because, you know, like I said, oh, I, I don't need to see it because they're not going to do it justice. But two of my favorite actors are in it, Jamie Hector and uh, Wumi Musaku. Mm. And I figured, okay, all right, I, I got to give it a shot. And, you know, I think they did a pretty decent job in in exposing the level, I mean, just the absolute degradation and complete lack of concern for law, rule, concern for people, you know, people's safety that they're stealing money from. Just the fact that I think there was one scene in particular where they steal money from a guy who he has a family and he's he's selling drugs on the side. He has his the money uh, hidden in a closet that they raid his apartment. They take his money. And what happens to him? He's killed by the person he owes the money to. So, I mean, when you understand as a cop, that is how the game operates. The drug game operates. 
you know then every time you steal money from some of these people, you are putting people's lives in danger. And they just didn't care. And I just felt like that was, I think that particular scene, which was like kind of a flashback almost when the cops were arrested, was was something that was highlighted very well. But I, I also feel like, Sean, not enough attention, attention was paid to the politicians. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the cops are the easy target, right? Because anybody in Baltimore could have told that story. <laughs> I, I swear to God, any, you could have asked anybody in Baltimore and they could have sat down and told you probably what happened to them, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what missed the mark in this series for me was the complicity of the politicians, like Catherine Pugh, the fact that, you know, she was basically uh, a spineless to, to do anything about this issue that she knew existed, but she, you know, she just didn't want to take money away from, she always said her babies, her, her children's program, you know, the children's program, programs, but nobody did anything about this massive amount of overtime that these corrupt cops were, uh, you know, accruing. And, and that's how they were, like, literally getting rich. Like they were working all of this endless overtime that was approved by the city. And they were also stealing people's money and drugs and selling drugs. So, I mean, there's no way that this happens in a a in an apolitical vacuum. And I really feel like the series did not pay attention, enough attention to the political enabling of this system that, I mean, still existed after the task force was allegedly disbanded, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you you were actually the one that made me realize that very aspect of it, Jackie, in terms of how they didn't really focus on the uh, uh, political officials. So, you know, they obviously talked a lot to the cops themselves, the the police brass, the commissioner, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, different agencies like that. And they also made it a point into show to try to bring in this this broader context around an incoming uh, uh, Trump presidency mm-hmm. and, and what that could mean. Um, and, and it's funny because at the end of the show, we were just discussing off air um, about how you know, it didn't really end in a satisfying way. I mean, it's a true story and we know how it ends, but it was just kind of abrupt. And I actually feel you know, that because I mean, I, I enjoyed it like as a piece of entertainment. I enjoyed it. Like uh, I mentioned, John Bernthal, who I mean, you know, just made a very um, convincing and natural seeming villain mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of uh, Wayne Jenkins. I think Jamie Hector did a great job as Sean Souter. I thought it was interesting the stance that and this was one thing that I was actually looking to see how they were going to handle from when I started watching the show. Like what stance were they going to take? on the death of Sean Souter. Mm-hmm. And they clearly take the stance on the narrative that he uh, committed suicide. Right. And, you know, there's still, I mean, that's like the official ruling, but uh, there's still a lot of questions uh, from a number of areas of one, what actually happened around Sean Souter. But I thought uh, it was interesting how they framed Souter as like basically a good cop that got like caught up in like some mess that he didn't know how to handle and the hammer was about to come down and he turns up dead. And so they sort of frame him as uh, sympathetic uh, while at the same time uh, uh, still complicit. And like I say, sort of taking a, a stance on 
what what uh, actually happened to him. But yeah, the way it ended was just kind of like you know, it was just kind of uh, I know it felt kind of abrupt to me, kind of uh, emotionally empty. And it's funny because they do mention about how Catherine Pugh, you know, uh, uh, was you know charged with you know wire fraud mm-hmm. and 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 things like that, and. Uh, the the and to me that drives your point home even further that while they did sort of I think do a good job exposing the corruption of the police, they didn't really go deep into how how the gun trace task force is indicative of like broader, deeper, years long institutional issues right. within Baltimore that have had deadly impacts for its uh, poor working and oppressed community. I mean, particularly its uh, longtime black residents. Yeah, I mean, and and. The other thing that I think the the series did not do well was to dig deeper into the fallout from the murder of Freddie Gray, because that mm. plays a huge part in the narrative of the gun trace task force and the problems with the Baltimore Police Department. And again, they didn't focus on uh, the politics of the situation where, you know, they, they mention Marilyn Mosby and, and the indictments against the cops. But of course, they don't mention that she herself has been uh, a very corrupt figure uh, going after uh, Keith Davis Jr. Um, five times, trying to convict him five times, where where we're looking at, as you said, Sean, an entire system, political, uh, the public service and the police at the DA's office and even the Department of Justice coming in being, uh, uh, you know, insufficiently supported. I, I, and I don't know how the Federal Department of Justice uh, can come in and say, look, we're the DOJ, your police department is corrupt, and these are the things that we have found are problems and, uh, problems, and you're going to fix them. And the response is, well, I don't know if we have enough money to do that, and we can't do this, and we can't do that. And so the DOJ just sits there and goes, well, okay, I guess we just can't do that. And that's exactly what we see happening in in the series, which is which is the source of uh, Wumi Musaka's character. She is the a lead attorney for the DOJ, uh, trying to enforce this consent decree. This is her frustration that these are problems, and and the DOJ for better or for worse, is trying to address them. But the entire political structure in Baltimore is hemming and hawing and giving excuses for why, you know, nothing can be done. And then there is the issue of the Trump administration. But, you know, that the, the, the situation with the murder of Freddie Gray and uh, uh, Marilyn Mosby and the way she handled that case um, and what she has done since then is a key part in uh, this ongoing issue with corruption in uh, uh, in Baltimore, uh, because it, it's interesting that she didn't go after those cops in the mm-hmm. gun trace task force. Um, but then there are continued problems afterward. And at the end of the episode, Sean, of course, you know, the, the ending is empty and it and it's you know, it's it, it gives us kind of this cliffhanger feeling, but that's exactly what happened. Like this new police chief is is uh, um, uh, sworn in, 
and then he's got legal issues and the very uh, plain clothes uh, uh, a task force uh, task forces that were eliminated under the last police chief for for corruption well they they're reinstated so so that I mean I think the the empty unsatisfactory feeling we had when we were watching it it's like that's what people in Baltimore and cities that are experiencing the problems of policing like Baltimore, that's what they feel every day. It's like who who has our back? Not anybody in political power, not anybody who's supposed to be a public servant. We are on our own, and it's us against them. Yeah, definitely. And I also feel like you really saw uh, a good example of like the character of the police as an institution, you know, because they, they showed how, you know, the, you know, the cops were doing like work slowdowns and not doing as many arrests and things like that. And I remember when that happened because, you know, this was their way of expressing, you know, displeasure to what they felt was an unsupportive government. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it also means they're like not a randomly, uh, uh, you know, uh, arresting people in the way that they were. And it's funny because you still see this, um, this attitude that you see some years later, it's like if the police aren't around or, or aren't, you know, doing what they're supposed to do, if they feel neglected, then, you know, a crime rates uh, a skyrocket and things like that. And there's just never sort of a deeper question about sort of uh, uh, how material conditions factor into that. You know, I was reading uh, an article about um, it was like a review of the show on this site called Decider. And it, it described uh, We Own This City as a, quote, well-intentioned but flawed look at the endemic failures of modern day policing. And I think that that's uh, uh, pretty accurate because I do think they set out to sort of have that view. I think it could have been uh, enriched in a number of ways as we've been discussing. But overall, uh, I think uh, an interesting way to address the topic and, you know, I would encourage people to watch it. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, June 6, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Liberty, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E. 
e.digital, and you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're Very happy to be joined for the hour today by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of the book, Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be back. Absolutely. And Margaret, of course, you know, the country is still reeling, grappling with uh, a lot of questions, and I still think a lot of uh, grief and shock around the, the recent mass shootings here in the U.S., like we saw in Uvalde, Texas, and racist terror attack uh, shooting in uh, uh, Buffalo, New York. And we've been discussing on the show about how, you know, there's, it's like a predictable cycle of uh, how things play out whenever we have a shooting and how inevitably we hear seemingly everything from our elected officials except a real uh, solution or even a critical analysis of the issue. And it seems like everything is blamed in terms of um, a cause or a motivation or, or solution except for what one would think would be pretty glaringly uh, obvious uh, systemic issues that promotes this kind of antisocial behavior. And you recently published a piece about this on Black Agenda Report entitled Mass Shootings, Empire uh, and Racist Copaganda Dog Whistles. And I I think it's true that a lot of these things are, are all tied together, and it's definitely not These shootings are not happening in a vacuum or absent of uh, the broader context of the uh, social, political and economic situation here, even uh, inside the U.S. And what you point out in your piece is how um, there continues to be this valorization of the police even though uh, we've seen yet another glaring example, speaking of Uvalde, about the police just straight up not doing the job that we that we're told they're in place to do and basically just sort of falling back and waiting outside as the shooting went on inside. And, and of course, by now, I'm sure folks are familiar with um, the woman who was a mother who literally ran into the building herself, saved her kids and came back while the cops were just standing out there uh, stuck on stupid. And you you make mention of uh, David Axelrod, who was a campaign strategist and staffer uh, uh, under uh, Barack Obama, who uh, was talking about the shooting and saying, quote, the inexplicable heart-wrenching delay in Uvalde underscores the indispensable role of the police, which is amazing. Because even though the whole country has watched how the police don't keep us safe, either in mass shootings 
or in a number of other situations. But according to Axelrod, that somehow shows that the police are actually valuable. Well, this is the completely backwards logic uh, uh, of uh, the political establishment as it seems to pertain to this uh, issue, Margaret. And I think uh, definitely an aspect of uh, uh, sort of uh, the the deepening crisis that's happening inside the U.S. right now that, uh, you know, the ruling class, you know, seems to refuse to really acknowledge. Yes, it's um, uh, it's interesting that uh, every time we have these mass shootings, we see the same uh, canned responses, uh, Republicans swearing that they will not enact any regulations on uh, uh, firearms ownerships, Democrats pretending that they will, but not ever doing anything. And uh, now we have a a new old wrinkle whereby the Democratic Party has uh, decided that being pro-police is the best new dog whistle for white voters. And the dog, political dog whistle being like an actual dog whistle, which only dogs can hear. A political dog whistle is one that is meant for uh, one group. The, The words aren't said out loud. Uh, nobody will say that we yes, we are going to keep black people in line instead they uh, Biden will say that the police need thirty billion dollars police departments across the country now Uvalde allegedly had a SWAT team uh if you look on facebook i don 't know if they 've taken it down yet the um the police department of course has a Facebook page, and a couple of years ago announced uh, and they had uh, a photo of cops and you know big guns bulletproof proof vest saying we have a SWAT team and if you see us at schools or anywhere else just know that we're practicing our skills or I'm paraphrasing so I don't know if they disbanded the SWAT team I don't know what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago when the gunman went into the school but that's what happens with money for police they get gadgets they get guns they get cars but it it isn't anything that helps the people it is literally um waste. It's money down a black hole. But politically, it's very important to them. You know, when the uh, in 2020, when the uh, Democrats uh, actually lost some seats in the House, what was the first thing they said? Well, this is because of the uh, demand to defund the police. They said it immediately, meaning they had made it up. Their first uh, their first instinct, of course, is to beat down on their uh, uh, left members right away. And said it's, it's defunding the police. That's the thing that's uh, hurting the Democratic Party. And so they've now um, uh, gone on this new rant about having to give more money to police. Of course, members of the Black Caucus, like uh, James Clyburn, have said we've got to get rid of this talk of defunding the police. It's hurting the Democratic Party and and so on. So then you have a guy like Axelrod, who is uh, still a leading Democratic Party strategist, going on Twitter and stupidly trying to defend, the, instead of shutting up and waiting a while, tried to defend the police, saying this shows why we need the police. Instead, this whole episode showed, made the case uh, for um, not needing the police. But that's where we are, because this is still a central focus of the Democratic Party in their effort to get white votes, even as they depend on the votes of black people. And, you know, the Democratic Party needs to be at the center of this issue of gun violence, because I know it's easy. It is easy for people to make 
the Republicans and the NRA and their good guy with a gun narrative, the foil, which, yeah, they are. They have their responsibility. But, you know, the Democrats do a really good job of this performative politics. And this time they didn't disappoint. They put Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut out there uh, on the floor of Congress. And he's near tears and he's, you know, talking about what are we doing? Why are we here? This only happens in this country and nowhere else. And I'm here on this floor to beg, to literally get down on my hands and knees and beg my colleagues, find a path forward here. But this is the same guy who represents the same party that uh, went to Ukraine in 2013 with his friend and colleague, John McCain, and passed out cookies with Victoria Nuland to the right sector and the neo-Nazis in Ukraine that took over uh, uh, the protests there and eventually were incorporated into the army. This Chris Murphy is the same person who said of Nicolas Maduro, Maduro is evil. And the U.S. should pursue a strategy to undermine him and prompt new elections. No one can defend what he has done to Venezuela. I don't know, feed people, make sure there are no homeless people in Venezuela. Then he said, but it's quite a different thing for the U.S. to incite a civil war with no real plan how it ends. Now, to me, Margaret, that is this Democrat supposedly better than the Republicans saying, not saying inciting a civil war is bad. Just that don't incite a civil war unless you have an exit strategy. And and it's this kind of hypocrisy from the Democratic Party, the party that supports on a bipartisan basis every single war regime change, covert operation, arms deals to actual dictators that is put forth in Congress. So we have a Congress with Republicans and Democrats who literally export death, carnage, destruction, violence, and, and bloodshed around the world. But somehow we're, we're supposed to believe that these people are, are, are honestly, sincerely begging for peace and tranquility in any way on the streets of this country. You know, the, the connection between state violence and individual violence is not made often enough. And that's how uh, a hypocrite like Senator Murphy can get uh, a hearing with the public and get praise for um, uh, his his little uh, routine there. And and no, I'm not taking seriously what he said. He um, uh, uh, appeared in in Ukraine with the late John McCain in 2013 um, with neo a huge crowd the Svoboda. Party, it's called one of the neo-Nazi parties in Ukraine, to over advocating overthrowing the government of the elected president, which the Obama administration helped to do. So you can't go all over the world and say uh, uh, Venezuela uh, needs to be overthrown. That's violence. You think nobody gets uh, killed and. Uh, a coup against uh, another government. You cannot disconnect them. You cannot say that violence is okay some other place, but that it's forbidden in the U.S. It's not going to work that way. You can't have a mindset that says uh, uh, the more powerful entity, the U.S., can do whatever it wants to whomever it wants, and then be surprised when individuals, yes, they may be disturbed, as was obviously the case in Uvalde or um, 
or in Buffalo, where it was a, a white supremacist who was also a disturbed person, I believe. But uh, they, we have to stop accepting this. Uh, in addition to the hypocrisy, because we know that nothing is going to happen. And Biden, too, has had his own little performances. What are we going to do? You know, praying, begging to God. He wants to unite the people, blah, blah, blah. But uh, he continues this violence all over the world and is pushing for money for police means violence against the people, especially against black people. So we are not going to resolve this issue of uh, the disturbed individual as long as we have a country that is dedicated to practicing violence everywhere. Definitely. And <clears throat> what you're highlighting here, Margaret, is the fundamental hypocrisy in all of this, as you've laid out the U.S., lamenting uh, violence uh, uh, at home while, you know, uh, I'm not even sure what the word is, just sort of uh, growing and facilitating and funding and ensuring a violence, death, destruction, war, bloodshed and everything else. Just these completely ruinous campaigns of a never ending war all uh, uh, across the globe. And that's why I maintain that um, uh, one aspect of these mass shootings is a kind of a, of a blowback on this. And particularly what you note about uh, uh, Joe Biden, you know, who tweeted in response to the Uvalde shooting, quote, in America, evil will not Excuse me, this is in response to the Buffalo shooting. In America, evil will not win. Hate will not prevail. White supremacy will not have the last word. Well, I would argue that hate's been prevailing in the United States for about 400 years or so uh, at this point. And um, I agree that white supremacy will not have the last word, but it has been the dominant uh, characteristic of this capitalist country, quite literally, from the very beginning. And the thing about this, Margaret, is that, you know, and this is what I always say, like when we talk about our public officials, elected officials, they're fools, but they're not stupid. They know uh, precisely what went into um, the the founding of this country and all of that, excuse me, but all of that has to be twisted and contorted um, to sort of suit uh, the narrative that will justify the maintenance of the status quo. And that is ultimately, I think, what all of this is really about. They'll say and do all kinds of, of things, but it will ultimately come to naught because they know from their perspective they feel they have to engage in political theater to make it look like they're doing something. But they know that ultimately there's no way in the world that they will even entertain anything um, that could uh, challenge the systems and institutions that are in place because those same institutions and systems are precisely what give them any kind of legitimacy. And so I, I see it as uh, uh, just another form of the ruling class, the capitalist class in this country trying to protect itself while the rest of us are the ones that are out here vulnerable to this violence. You know what I mean? Yes, you're absolutely right. And there's there's another thing that, that is um, not talked about. There are millions of people in this country who love their guns. There are, in fact, more firearms than there are people. There are some 330 million people, but more than 400 million uh, guns. So, it, you know, gun ownership is popular and loving uh, guns and violence is popular amongst I mean, it, it varies, of course, geographically, demographically, and so on. But there are millions of people who think this is just fine. 
and they don't want to change anything. Uh, there was a, a Republican congressman in uh, near Buffalo who um, uh, forgot himself and said, well, maybe we need to talk about uh, uh, banning high-capacity firearms. And he recently, to cut to the chase, has decided he's not running again. He was attacked so viciously. Um, he was told he was going to face the primary. They were going to raise money from somebody else. Donald Trump Jr., you know, uh, uh, ginned up his army of, uh, of nitwits to— uh, but there's a lot of them to attack him on Twitter. And the guy is out. He's not going to be his one-term congressman and uh, will always be a one-term congressman because he's not going to run again. Uh, but, but, you know, and so we forget the NRA uh, for um, all of the things we can criticize is also, in a way, a grassroots organization. So when uh, Biden says, you know, hate won't prevail and white supremacy won't prevail— of course it does, because there are many hateful white supremacist people. There are people who believe in violence, who are just itching, just waiting for the chance to uh, be justified in shooting someone. They may call themselves a good guy with the gun or whatever they like, but uh, that's what it amounts to. So this uh, gun culture exists, still exists because it is, it is very popular among large segments of the population. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. And Margaret, directly related, uh, I think, to this whole issue, when we talk about um, the fragile state of the social and political situation in the United States, is the, the, the insatiable lust for war on the part of the ruling class that I think is not only evident in the tens of billions of dollars that uh, the Biden administration is sending to Ukraine, but also um, this broader $813 billion uh, military spending budget that uh, uh, has been proposed by the Biden administration. And, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, it's a reminder that we really live under the rule of a single war party with uh, two different factions, because more oftentimes than not, Democrats and Republicans are in lockstep uh, when it comes to issues of war and uh, uh, imperialism. But also, I just feel like the more that we see this, Margaret, the more that the real character of the U.S. government's priorities become clearer and clearer. And all, and, and because it's proposing this 
just grossly bloated military spending budget, which the U.S. military spending budget always is. It always outpaces uh, the rest of the countries on Earth by uh, an order an order of magnitude, which makes sense when you understand that the U.S. is the uh, imperialist superpower on the world stage. Imperialism is the highest form of capitalism. And when you have this um, program of infinite expansion uh, for the sake of getting into new markets, well, then you're going to need a, a military force to protect those financial interests. And so from the standpoint of the ruling class and the war profiteers, this campaign of never-ending wars is, is necessary. And uh, the, the catastrophic impact that it has on humanity then is considered uh, uh, the cost of doing business. You know what I mean? And so while we have rising prices on oil and food and housing and all those things that Joe Biden tells us is due to Biden's uh, uh, to Putin's price hikes. Right. There's a big, bad man in a big, bad country that's making everything more expensive. Right. Pay no attention to anything else that's uh, actually happening. It's got to be that guy because everything he does is bad. And we've been saying this to you for years. So, you know, it's true. You know what I mean? And so uh, when we look at this rot that's um, uh, uh, happening, Margaret, it in a way it it boggles the mind but in another way it makes complete sense when you think about it from the frame of capitalist logic as uh, uh the ruling class continues to uh, uh sort of give unlimited money and resources to war meanwhile uh people continue to to wane and fall deeper into uh uh frankly a kind of social death here at home well yes um yes to all of that um uh, we we live in this system that is um, in crisis, but the crisis, of course, uh, forces it to behave irrationally. So um, that uh, uh, there's always there's even more and more and more money for war. You know, it was not always the case. Military spending is now about sixty percent of discretionary spending, uh, but it wasn't always that much. It accelerated, of course, after nine eleven. Um, uh, making um, uh, meaning that those people who question what we were told about it, not uh, crazy conspiracy theorists, but at any rate, because it did end up uh, uh, enhancing what uh, there were forces here and what they wanted to do all along. So yes, it's a it is a it's a huge problem that we have this country with this history of violence, this history of domination, of American exceptionalism, uh, this idea that the U.S. is exceptionally good when in fact it is exceptional, but um, uh, in most ways not at all in a good way. Uh, and we have a system, as you point out, in crisis, that is capitalism demanding more and more and more, more and more violence in order to achieve domination. It's, it's domination of the globe, which actually in some ways means that the U.S. ends up uh, undermining itself. Uh, so, for example, uh, apparently the U.S. is going to end some of or relax some of its sanctions against Venezuela and let Venezuela sell oil to Europe because they demanded that the Europeans cut off um, their oil supplies from Russia. So now they have to try to undo something they insisted they could not uh, that they had to do for years. And uh, yes, so this system in crisis is, um, as you say, 
makes everyone, makes the whole planet collateral damage. Everything from uh, people dying in, in uh, wars to people here uh, dying as a result of a, a, a sickness about uh, uh, violence, the, the ecological damage done by the U.S. military, the world's biggest polluter. So, yes, we're all collateral damage to uh, this system. And um, unless or until there is mass anger, um, uh, anger which demands something very, very different, that demands a completely different world, which demands that the models of life and uh, society that we're always told we have to reject um, uh, if we, unless we demand those things, which we're uh, like Vladimir Putin, that, you know, it's funny thing. The things we're told are really, really horrible are always the things we should take a look at. So, yes, Vladimir Putin is a hard-nosed politician, but he's not the evil dictator we've been told. And these countries who we're told, well, you know, socialism doesn't work or that can't, you know, that's nothing for you to look at over there. Those are the things that, in fact, we must consider. And, you know, it's the part about, you know, people demanding something different that I'm 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 waiting on. I'm wondering how long that's going to take. I'm really just kind of wondering what what more do people need when, you know, this new aid package, that which is the seventh or eighth since February 25th uh, that the U.S. government has approved in military aid to Ukraine, this package is $40 billion, and it is uh, going to increase the daily spending on Ukraine to $135 million a day. Now, that's $135 million a day that's going to uh, mostly weapons uh, contractors to build more weapons to send to Ukraine that will actually end up on the black market as uh, Ukrainians are selling those weapons on the black market. And that's a whole nother uh, piece of this right there. But then, I mean, once that information is out there, Margaret, that the U.S. government has uh, approved an aid package that has not only approved uh, military aid, uh, but also economic aid to support the Ukrainian government and to support its economy and to help stave off the collapse of the pensions of Ukrainian workers. I, I do not know what else American workers need to hear to get them angry enough to say enough is enough. I mean, what else do you think people need to hear aside from your government is sending your health care, housing, education, um, student loan debt money to Ukraine to keep their economy from collapsing? Meanwhile, you are economically insolvent and and just facing what could be another economic recession that could make things much, much worse. Well, you know, Jackie, that's why they don't want you to know these things. Um, everything you've mentioned is true, but good luck finding it in the New York Times or in NPR or, or on CNN. Uh, yes, the U.S. government is now paying civil servant salaries in Ukraine, among uh, among other things. All the things we're told we can't have, the U.S. will pay 
for somewhere else if they uh, believe there's some uh, uh, benefit to uh, their system. But this is why they don't want people to know. This is why they will uh, suspend a social media uh, uh, account if you say something that uh, differs from the narrative. I was um, not kicked off, but I got a warning from Facebook, uh, as an example. Um, They made a big deal about Finland wanting to join NATO. And I found out that uh, Finland, until recently, their Air Force had a swastika on its logo. And their Air Force Academy still has one because it was pro-Nazi in their effort to uh, fight the Soviet Union in the 30s and 40s, but they never got rid of them. So I point this out and I get this little warning, oh, your uh, post lacks context. And our fact checkers say that, you know, you lack context and this could be repercussions for you further down the line. So a little post with a photo of a real logo from a real government um, can uh, get you a warning. And sometimes, uh, you know, depending on how the algorithms work, they can kick you off altogether. And people don't know these things by design. Uh, The corporate media go along. Everything you read in the New York Times, I was telling a, a friend, everything you read in the New York Times about Ukraine is worthless, absolutely worthless. All they are are states. State Department spokespeople. They don't say anything that differs from what the uh, government says. And so they don't want you to know. They don't want you to know what they spend money on. They don't want you to know what they do around the world. Um, They, you know, uh, propagandize you with, I saw something else about a jobs report. Those jobs numbers are always phony, always. And every president uses them. But they they are meaningless. They are absolutely meaningless. And, oh, you know, Biden produced more jobs than than Donald Trump did. Uh, uh, So they simultaneously silence and try to keep us from getting the information that we need and also put out their own uh, misinformation. They always, you know, they're always crying about disinformation, which is nothing but all it amounts to is a narrative they don't want you to hear. Um, uh, So that's how they're trying to stave off. Uh, these developments is to trick people and to restrict information, which would cause them to question even more. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up this issue of uh, a big tech and how they factor into all of this, this sort of broader climate, Margaret. I mean, uh, not that long ago, uh, you published um, another piece. This was back in May, a Black Agenda report um, entitled uh, Liberals Drive State Censorship. And uh, that was, it, it's been such a strange dynamic that I've been seeing um, develop here lately to where, you know, pushing back against censorship or big tech collaborating with the state to uh, suppress dissenting views is today seen as like a right wing, uh, uh, like, ideology or political point. You know what I mean? And, you know, I think obviously if people believe that yeah, Republicans are like warriors for um, actual free speech, then I think we're, we're, we're fooling ourselves. I mean, like anything, free speech sort of exists within its own context and certainly has its own class character. I mean, we always have to ask the question, free speech for who? But I think it definitely is true that in this moment, it, it's the liberal wing of the ruling class that is telling the, the rank and file person in this country that is telling poor working and oppressed people that no censorship is good for you. You should let us tell you 
you know, uh, what is true, what is untrue, what is legitimate, what is illegitimate, what is journalism, uh, what is propaganda, what's real and what's misinformation, you know what I mean, or, or disinformation. And it, it, I think that sort of the political and class character of this censorship and suppression campaign uh, should really be uh, uh, examined because it, it shows, I think, sort of the, the real character of the capitalist state itself and how really uh, how these things play out, regardless of which wing of the ruling class and its political expression are in power, be they a Democrat or Republican. You know what I mean? Yeah, I knew something was up uh, a couple of months ago. Obama gave uh, two speeches about the dangers of disinformation. And I said, oh, my God, what do they now? And shortly they, thereafter, they announced this disinformation governance board uh, that would help the government to uh, uh, fight disinformation. Now, mind you, every government agency from the White House on down has spokespeople, has press offices. They don't need anything new. But the goal was to discredit anybody who uh, to really ramp up uh, that censorship against anyone who deviated. And I think uh, particularly about Ukraine. So but it, it was Obama who made that appeal. It was the Biden administration that was proposing it. Now, they messed up their PR launch, so they had to pedal back and uh, backpedal rather and uh, say they weren't going to do it or it's temporarily on hold or on pause or something like that because they messed it up so much. But that is what they want to do. And it is the big tech is allied with the Democratic Party. Uh, they are the ones who said you could not know the story of Hunter Biden's laptop and the emails which indicated that um, uh, he was a conduit uh, for uh, meetings between his father and Ukrainian uh, officials. Biden was the Obama administration point person on Ukraine, by the way. And Twitter would not let you post any articles. They wouldn't let you link to anything about it. That is just an example. A uh, friend and colleague, Danny Haifong, is currently suspended by Twitter because he dared to question the narrative about Tiananmen Square. So he can't post for a week unless he admits guilt and deletes the tweet or something along those lines. Uh, so, But it is the liberal class that is pushing censorship more than anyone. And, it, you know, it actually, when you think about it, it makes sense. They're the ones who go to the right schools and know all the right people and, you know, are the ones who uh, uh, are, are in these, uh, the think tanks and the universities and all of these supposedly right places, the best and brightest places. So they're the ones who can really in force. And it's something that um, is very, very dangerous. And uh, uh, we have to do everything we can to push back against it. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought up Barack Obama because that dude did not resurface after for years until this conflict in Ukraine was stirred up and he needed to be trotted out to silence these crazy young leftists again. I mean, just the idea that Barack Obama is, I, I'm not even going to say that he is used by the Democratic Party. He knows that he is, uh, uh, his role in the Democratic Party is to crush any uh, youthful leftist progressive uh, expression in the party and to be the signal 
for black folks in the Democratic Party to like be the foot soldiers to doing that. And I I cannot overstate how absolutely just diabolical that man has been in doing exactly that, in weaponizing identity to silence dissent among black leftists and black voters, Margaret. And and every time his his face pops up, I know it's for no good. And I know that something even worse is coming. And and just like you pointed out, that's exactly what happened. Well, you're absolutely right. They even trotted him out to stop uh, the NBA players from going on strike. He uh, uh, involved himself on that. That would have been huge. But of course, that's why they needed him to stop it. He was the one who they used to stop Bernie Sanders in 2020. And uh, he's the one who said, "Okay, we're going to go with Joe Biden. So, uh, yes, you're you're absolutely right. And you're about, about the role that he plays. And the fact that his um, uh, uh, presence is a malign, you know, they're always talking about a malign presence for Russia or China or something. He has a malign presence. Every time that dude pops up, you know that something bad is uh, uh, about to happen. So, uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, So his um, uh, uh, presence is a deadly one. He's still, unfortunately, it's I hate to say it, but he's still very popular among many people who by now ought to know better. So that's why they trot him out. That's why he gave not one but two speeches about disinformation so that when they announced this disinformation government governance board and when they kicked more people off of social media, it would go down a little smoother. But fortunately, they botched it and um, we're, they're going to have to wait a little longer before they can uh, do that. Definitely going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Denny C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Margaret Kimberly is here. And um, shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Uh, Nawadi uh, is reminding us about when uh, Barack Obama told Wall Street that he's the only thing standing between them and the pitchforks uh, back during the time of uh, that recession. And uh, that's a fact that he bailed out Wall Street when he did not have to. They got bailed out and the rest of us got sold out. And I appreciate, you know, you and Jackie raising this issue about Obama being used in this way by the Democrats. I mean, you know, I think Obama uh, and I think Jackie said this is very aware that that is a part of his um, role there in uh, the Democratic Party. And it's just the price of the ticket for uh, him being who he is. Because when we talk about Barack Obama, we're talking about someone who was very intentional about the moves he made in life, the city he lived in, the church he went to, uh, being a quote unquote community organizer, all of that 
you know, for him to uh, maneuver around uh, to kind of uh, fabricate this 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 legitimacy that he knew he had to have if he was going to be seen as um, valid amongst uh, black people, because I'm sure he understood that he was not somebody that was well known uh, amongst black people like uh, a Jesse Jackson type character or, or something like that. But uh, he was very strategic in how he picked his moments. Cause you know, Obama would do this thing where he liked to give off uh, signifiers of blackness, you know, whether it's singing Al green or, you know, singing uh, amazing grace at, at the funeral of the, the people that were killed in the racist terror attack in uh, South Carolina, which still just blow my mind that he chose to use that as his, you know, uh, uh, amateur night at the uh, Apollo moment. But even when he went to uh, when he gave that speech in like a, a tan suit, I mean, you know, the the the, the right wing ridiculously made, um, you know, a scandal out of that uh, just out of sheer racism. But all these sorts of things. I mean, he knows when to use that, you know, this little, you know, his soul brother inflection or to do his cool little walk, you know, that I think is of of dubious, dubious provenance. It's just, you know, it's a lot of uh, 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 tap dancing, if you will, uh, in order to to maintain the image. And I want to also remind people that uh, Barack Obama was also, uh, you know, one of the the most prominent people in the Democratic Party who came out against, you know, defund the police in that uh, ruling class smear campaign in uh, uh, all of this. And so it's just wild. And I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on this, Margaret, as someone who uh, wrote a book about black folks relationships to uh, uh, American presidents. And I just continue to feel that the presidency of Barack Obama signaled a historic setback in um, black politics that goes far beyond just the eight years that he spent in office, but his ongoing role in public life as he enjoys a lucrative uh, post-presidency career that I think makes him really quite valuable for that wing of the ruling class. Oh, yes. Uh, yes to all of that. And I'm glad you uh, mentioned uh, the people who were killed in Charleston. Why did he go to the funeral? To keep black people from being angry, just what we've been talking about. So he showed up um, to uh, tamp down the righteous anger and saying amazing grace. It's like, just have some grace about this. Don't get mad. And people ate it up, um, sadly, unfortunately. So he was doing what, uh, what he usually does. So this, I, I, I hope, you know, people ask, will there ever be another black president? And my, I hope not. I mean, I guess it's possible, but I'm hoping no, that we never get this uh, uh, persona that you would have to have, frankly, in order for a black person to be elected. I hope we never, ever uh, see that um, again. But we're stuck with him for the rest of his life. Uh, uh, one of these presidents who's not gonna, you know, Jimmy Carter went and built houses, and they're even actively even trotting out George W. Bush to try to talk about Ukraine, but he messed it up and confused Ukraine with Iraq and admitted his own guilt, which was one of my favorite moments, frankly, uh, of uh, of all time. It was like a gift, but um, but yes, he will he will be around forever. 
to put the left back in their place. But the left needs to leave the Democratic Party. It's enough is enough. What do we what do we get out of it? Nothing. I mean, I already have. I'm long gone. But other people need to as well. Um, you know, we've already seen they tried, you know, Putin's price hike and all kinds of things. None of that is going to help Biden because he's failed the people so miserably. He lied. I can't remember a campaign where president lied as much as uh, the winner lied as much as he uh, did. The, he said he was going to do some real student loan debt relief. What's $10,000 when people have hundreds and thousands of dollars of debt? It's nothing. It's an insult. Um, you know, raising the minimum wage. Oh, the parliamentarian won't let me do it. Build back better. Well, I'd help you, but it's mansion and cinema. Uh, I, you know, I could go on and on or the failures with the, I mean, baby formula. I mean, this crisis was brewing for a couple of months before they did anything. And then they made a big show of uh, doing what they should have done, getting formula from other countries. But, um, you know, I wrote a piece called Capitalism and Baby Formula. So I guess there's only so much you can do uh, um, about something like that. But, um yeah, there, there's always going to be an Obama. They're always going to use some uh, right-wing, dubious person and say, "Oh, you know, you got to vote for us, or at least, at least, you know, or else you'll get Trump again, or you'll get." Or they're talking about January sixth again. I guess they'll keep milking that cow. But uh, this is what comes from uh, people uh, to to Jackie's point, not finally taking action, the least people can do is stop voting for these people. That's the very least. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing, I definitely get what you're saying in terms of when you say we hope we don't get another black president. I mean, I, I think it's a pretty good chance that we will at some point. I just, you know, in the same way that the Obama presidency was, uh, uh, I think, in one aspect, an example of that wing of the ruling class kind of slamming the the, the emergency button and doing something that they um, otherwise uh, uh, might not, basically to help keep the uh, system in check or to keep it uh, intact is what I mean to say, because we had just come off of sort of uh, uh, an obviously clearly racist and uh, uh, war-obsessed uh, George W. Bush a Republican administration. And here comes Obama framing himself as not only the answer to George W. Bush, but actually the culmination of centuries of the black liberation struggle. And so I think it, it, it makes sense that we would reach a moment in the U S where that same wing of the ruling class would feel the need to do a similar thing again. I mean, you hear grumblings about a possible run for Kamala. I think that would not work out well, likely for the Democrats. And, but having said that also don't know who else they would get. As I've mentioned before, they, they have no bench and anyone prominent enough to make any noise in terms of being president I mean, not not someone that's going to get the people going, kind of sort of like uh, uh, Biden didn't either. It was a desire to get rid of Trump that really mobilized people. But we have a caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Well, Miss Kimberly is very um, informative and educational in terms of uh, some of the nuances that the rest of us, Trump's, excuse me, <laughs> can't um, have the time or We'll, we don't have the time to monitor all of this uh, ministry of what Orwell called uh, ministry of truth and the, uh, you know, Big Brother and all this stuff. It's scary to think that they would go into uh, something that Ms. Kimberly put out 
publicized, publicized and go in and address, attack it as though, or, or remove it. When the truth is, I've been to Finland, I've discussed this with them, and they said, okay, you're right. We did have a swastika, but it was the reverse of the Hitler swastika. If you look at the, 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 the design of it, they had one, but it went to the right or to the left, and the other one went to the right or to the left. But anyway, it wasn't exact, but it, it was a swastika-type emblem. So the fans argued, yes, we did have this swastika, but it was a reverse one of what the uh, Germans had, but we did it because it was a case of uh, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. Because, you know, the Russians were fighting the Germans, and, and so, uh, you know, an enemy of my enemy, which they thought were the Russians at that time, because they had had a, you know, a small, you know, winter war or something like that. But still, to take it down is basically pure censorship because they did have this swastika-like emblem and no one can take that away. It may be debatable, but why take it off, take it down? It's true. So I, I, I leave that to Ms. Kimberly. Well, thank you, Keith. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Margaret, your thoughts? Um, uh, thank you for that, um, for uh, clarifying and expanding on uh, on what I, I brought up. But, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the fact of the direction of the swastika, actually I showed a photo of it, so anybody that interested could see it for themselves. Um, but uh, at any rate, yeah, the goal is to silence, and, and big tech does what the government says. They do, they do what the government says. How does uh, Tiananmen Square get to be off limits this week? Because somebody decided it was. Uh, someone decided you can't say anything bad about Finland because Finland is, by the way, breaking a decades-long treaty with Russia by joining NATO, which or trying to join NATO. Uh, so you can't talk, you know, uh, about uh, uh, Finland. But to show you how effective we can be, the Azov Battalion in Ukraine has changed its logo. They've gotten rid of this uh, symbol that was related to the Wolf's Angel. Yes, yes, they got rid of it because, oh, well, not Nazi anymore. We're not using that. But it tells you that people kept pointing it out. They That's why they got rid of it. They could not hide. They couldn't, on the one hand, say we're not, you know, we're not uh, those N-word uh, German 1930s and 40s N-word people um, when they had that symbol. So that tells you why there is this drive to censor because, uh, you know, um, Social media is a two-edged sword for them. People get to—we do get to say what we want to say, so they, of course, have to step in and make sure that we can't and limit our ability to talk and limit what we say and limit what we talk about. And it works because once you're warned or somebody you know is warned or kicked off, you think twice before you tweet or before you post or you think about, well, can I, should I say it this way or should I say it that way? It has the intended uh, effect of creating self-censorship. So they don't even have to do it because you start censoring yourself in order to uh, use these platforms and um, and continue to be heard. But he's absolutely right. What? Okay, suppose you're, you know, that's like not quite true. It's not the same swastika. Well, so what? Well, somebody can say, well, actually, let me clarify that. Okay, fine. But uh, at a moment in history like this, when uh, they're fighting this unpopular war, they have to have as much war propaganda as possible. 
because they can't tell you the truth about Ukraine, that it's a kleptocracy from top to bottom, that it's completely run by oligarchs, and that uh, the fact that Zelensky is Jewish and his oligarch sponsor is also Jewish doesn't mean anything in Ukraine, which it was always full of Nazi sympathizers, always. So... um, That's why they have dropped the hammer. That's why they wheel out Obama. Um, That's why they do all of these things to limit uh, our ability to speak freely. You know, a couple of things. Uh, D.L. Sendero in the chat said, brought up this great point. What are all those Ukrainian Nazis going to do with their tattoos? Because, you know, (laughs) you know, something that the Russian forces have been doing when they have been uh, accepting the surrendered Azov battalions, uh, they have been forcing them to show their tattoos. They if you if you see some of the videos, they've been having them roll up their sleeves and pull up their uh, uh, their shirts and whatever. And you see all of this Nazi iconography just inked on their skin. So yay, the Azov Battalion is taking the Nazi iconography off of their, I guess, their patches and I suppose their flag, but can't do anything with those tattoos on your skin. And then the other thing about Finland, and and I'm glad that Keith brought that up because I, I never knew that about Finland's excuse for putting uh, a backward swastika on their flag. I mean, the idea of, of you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that's all fine and all. And there are always, you know, arrangements made by governments in times of war that are arrangements of convenience, you know, not because you like the people, Sean, but nobody ever has to go putting the emblem of another country's flag on their flag, but make it backward. So that people don't confuse you for them. That just makes no sense. And it just sounds like, you know, deflection to me. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, this uh, this 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 oligarch that is one of the the, the main sponsors of, of Volodymyr Zelensky that uh, Margaret is referencing is also a major funder of uh, the, the Azov Battalion, even though he is, in fact, Jewish, as Margaret pointing out. We learned this in our conversations with uh, uh, Asa Winstonley of uh, the uh, electronic intifada. And, you know, one thing that that Margaret said that I think is worth noting is is the fact that um, I think it was Danny Haifong, if I'm not mistaken, that was sort of, I think, briefly kept out of his Twitter account because of a post he made on Tiananmen Square. And see, it's important because this just goes to show whether we're talking about that, whether we're talking about the um, uh, censorship and suppression of uh, uh, media platforms that don't have any connection with uh, any government or state media apparatus that are independently funded. Not that that justifies the attacks on, you know, on platforms that are a part of state media, but it's bigger than just the narrative around Ukraine. It's bigger than Ukraine. It's bigger than Russia. It's actually about uh, creating a situation where dissenting views are just straight up not allowed. If you have an opinion that is contrary to that of U.S. imperialism or the Washington consensus, you will be subject to this kind of censorship. And we only see it getting worse. 
You know what I mean? And so, I mean, you know, as we say, we know that uh, social media and things like this um, can have a certain kind of a benefit in, in particular ways. But, you know, we must never forget that these are capitalist ventures. These are a for profit entities and that, you know, their billionaire owners and operators are very much beholden to the ruling class with whom they uh, uh, share uh, 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 many class interests. You know what I mean? And so this is what I think will really need to be keeping our eye on as things uh, move forward uh, as we continue to see this situation where the dissenting views are just being kept away from uh, uh, the masses of people because this is something that I think will actually make uh, the issue of democracy in the U.S. even worse. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Margaret Kimberly, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.